This is Book TV's Afterwards. Each week, a nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, or legislator that is familiar with their work. This week, our guest is Sally Pipes, president of the Pacific Research Institute. She'll discuss her book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. She'll be interviewed by Congressman Buddy Carter, a Republican of Georgia. Well, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Congressman. It's a delight. I I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I I had the opportunity to read it, and uh, it's obviously a timely subject, obviously a very important (laughs) subject. Very. As you may know, I'm a pharmacist, currently the only pharmacist serving in Congress. So health care is something that's extremely important to me. It's also important to to the American citizens. I think everyone would agree with that. And I I thought it was interesting that that you start by, you, you start off the book with the premise that the health care system is broken. And if we look at the polls, I think the polls would indicate that. Almost 70% of the people in America say that the healthcare system is broken. Right. Well, um, I think I really think that health care is going to be the number one domestic policy issue in the presidential election. Um, in a recent poll, uh, it just came out from Gallup that said 35 percent of the American people polled it rate health care as extremely important as one of the issues. And we've seen in the polling 50 53 percent of Americans support a single payer, i.e. no private coverage at all. But now 65 percent are supporting the public option, which would be a government insurance plan to compete against private insurers. And I call it a stepping stone approach uh, to single payer or government run health care, Medicare for all. And I would think that, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If you, if you look at what happened the last election cycle two years ago, right. my party, I guess it was a year ago, my party, the Republican Party, we were ousted as the majority in the House of Representatives. Many people will make the argument that the reason for that was the issue of health care, that, you know, many of us uh, campaigned on repeal and replace, and unfortunately we came close, but we didn't get that done, and it was shown at at the ballot box. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, uh, it was unfortunate because I think Donald Trump won the presidency and you had the House and the Senate by saying that we are going to repeal and replace disastrous Obamacare, which it is a disaster and has turned the whole health care system upside down for a very few uh, people. But we're definitely um, going to see health care be, be, out, be out there and be, be the issue. And um, we, we've got to present a cohesive um, strategy to the American people and educate them why, on why it is important that we have a market-based health care system and not one controlled by government, such as the federal, federal government. Well, let's talk about Obamacare for a second, the Affordable Care Act. Um, the, the forward to your book was written by Senator Tom Colburn, and he, he made the statement there. He said, the Affordable Care Act has failed to deliver on its promises. Five years after President Obama's signature legislative achievement went into full effect, individual market premiums have risen 75%. Many low- and middle-income people have been forced into plans with deductibles as high as $12,000. Give me your your opinion on Obamacare. Right. So Obamacare will turn 10 on March 23rd this year. I just can't believe. I thought for sure it would have been um, overturned in the Supreme Court in 2012 and then in 2015, but it wasn't. But Senator Coburn is absolutely right. The American people 
um, do not like Obamacare because of high premiums, high deductibles, as you mentioned, and they're even higher um, coming into this year, 2020. A sh- um, small networks of doctors and hospitals. A lot of people that I've spoken to who bought the platinum or the gold uh, plans on the exchanges thought that you know they were going to be able to keep their doctor, their health care would be fantastic. And unfortunately, they call their doctor's office and they said, well, we don't, we're not taking any of the exchange plans. So it's really been an overturn in the healthcare system, and it hasn't done what what we wanted. And there are still, you know, about 27 million people in this country uninsured. But most of them had options. They could have signed on to the exchange. They could have been they were eligible for for Medicaid and other and for subsidies on the exchanges. But they just didn't sign up. We're looking at about four million people, some of whom are illegals who couldn't sign up for Obamacare. But really, we need a competition and choice in our healthcare. P- families and individuals should be able to get the kind of healthcare that suits their needs, and not one where the government is man mandating, you know, 10 essential health benefits and all the state uh, mandates that really make health care more expensive and limit the choices that, that people have. Yeah, you know, from my perspective, I've always thought that the, the greatest failing of, of, of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act, was that it did take choice and, and, and competition out of health care and, and away from patients and from doctors where it should be. Right. I mean, we want a system that empowers doctors and patients, not the federal government, not state governments. And so, you know, that was really, I mean, I really thought that we would be able to repeal and replace Obamacare. When the Democrats took the House back in in 2018, I think the Republicans made a mistake in not really explaining to the American people what would happen to those people with pre-existing conditions. Because, you know, the Democrats said 120 million Americans have pre-existing chronic conditions. They're going to lose their health care. They're going to be out in the cold and it's going to be a disaster. Well, most of those people, as you know, have employer-sponsored insurance and they are not going to lose their coverage. There are only about 6 million people who have chronic conditions who are in the individual market. Those are the people that we need to take care of. And Dr. Tom Price, when he was um, in in the House, he, he and I talked a lot about getting the federal government to give money to the states so that they could set up or expand and make better the high-risk pools so that those people could get really good coverage that they could afford and they wouldn't lose it. And the younger people who really came out against Obamacare, even with the individual mandate, and paid that penalty rather than buying insurance because, you know, the cost for a young person of 25, 28, you know, of, you know, three to $400 a month was to cover the people with pre-existing conditions. And they said, hey, I'm going to pay that, you know, the, the, the individual mandate, the um, fine, rather than um, buy health coverage. And so everyone else was supporting those people who, who, you know, who are with pre-existing conditions. Right. And, and I would have to agree with you, although I, I love my party and, oh, and, and, and support my party. I don't think messaging is our strong point. No. And, and we need to do a better job with that. But if you look at the American Health Care Act that uh, came within one senator's vote of passing, you will see that we did indeed cover pre-existing conditions. Right. But right. we were ne- never able to articulate that. Right, and that, 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 that is a problem. I mean, that is one of my jobs as a former Canadian to educate the American people on why a full government takeover of our health care will lead to ration care, long waiting lists for care, a shortage of doctors, and, of course, higher and new, and new taxes. And people like Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, you know, they say, oh, the Canadian health care system is free. Well, it's not free. The average Canadian family pays $13,311 a year in hidden taxes for a system that denies them, them care. Right. So let's, let, let's go into the, the premise of your book, Medicare for All. Excellent. Medicare for All, as you describe it, is the shiny new toy that, right. that, that the Democrats have, have grabbed hold of. And 
you know, as we quite often say in politics, um, you know, perception is reality. Yes. And for a lot of people, they perceive this to be the answer until you get into the details. Right, exactly. And so, you know, Medicare for All, single payer has always been out there in the U.S. Bernie Sanders has been talking about it as part of his platform for many years. But I think it really didn't come into the fore until 2016 when he was running against Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination for president. He really got out and stumped for Medicare for All. And then, of course, in 2017, he had a single payer bill, 2019, co-sponsors, 16, like Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren and all the people that are kind of are in that race or, you know, are out of it, but we're in it. And so he really, you know, told the American people, we need the government to run the health care system. It'll lead to universal coverage. And of course, it won't cost very much and everybody will have access to the very best care. And we can talk about how much a single payer system would really cost in America, what it would mean for doctors, you know, what it would mean for long waiting lists, such as in Canada, where I'm from, or in the UK under the National Health Service. So he is, Senator Sanders is just adamant for a single payer. And I find it amazing, and I'm sure you do too, that he is at 30% in the Iowa caucus and he's at the top of the list of the candidates in New Hampshire. And just in a recent poll this week, he is the number one uh, candidate in California. Of course, California is extremely liberal, Mm -hmm. but I was amazed that you know, in particular, young people are really buying into what's what's better than to have free health care. I mean, it, it sounds like a fantastic idea until you unravel the onion. That's exactly right. And, and it should be interesting. Talk about a contrast, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. That, right. That's a contrast. That is a contrast. So let me ask you about the numbers, though, because, the you know, the support has grown since, as you pointed out, when it was first mentioned when Bernie Sanders was running against um, was running against Hillary Clinton, uh, the support was high in, in 2000, and it continued to grow. In 2000, the support for was at 40 percent in 2019, and it had grown up to set at 51 percent. 72 percent of Democrats were in favor of it. Right. However, when you started talking about those right. things that you brought up, eliminates private health insurance, then all of a sudden you see it plummet. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, we have employer-sponsored coverage in this country, and about 180 million Americans have their employer-sponsored coverage. So when you see in the polls that 59%, 53% support Medicare for all, but then, as you say, you say, well, what do you think about Medicare for all if you are going to lose your private insurance? Well, the, the numbers drop down to 37%. Well, how do you feel about um, Medicare for all if your taxes are going to go up? support goes down also to 37%. I think the problem is the American people don't really understand what Medicare for all means. And it sounds great and it's free, but you have to get under the weeds, unravel the onion and explain what it will mean for their health care and that they won't be able to keep their employer-sponsored coverage, of which in the recent poll, 71% of people who have ESI like it. They rate it as excellent or as good. So when Elizabeth Warren gets up, I've never met a person in my life who likes their health insurance. Well, who has she talked to if 71% like it? I like my insurance. I mean, you know, these are sort of lies to the American people, which people think, well, if if no one likes it, well, why wouldn't we have the government take it over? And and that's one point that I've always noted, that um, people like Medicare. The people who are on Medicare now, generally, it, when you say Medicare, it has positive connotations, and, and people like it. However, yes. add everybody into it, and what's going to happen? 
Well, right, and you know, if you look at Medicare today, which came into being in 1965 under uh, President Johnson and the, the Great Society, you know, we're spending about seven um, or eight hundred billion a year on Medicare, and the Medicare trustees have said that part. Um, a could be bankrupt, you know, by 2030. A lot of people, I would say probably upwards 50% of people on Medicare today now have Medicare Advantage or Medicare Supplemental mm -hmm. because one in three docs is not taking new Medicare patients because they are reimbursed at about 40% below what they get paid for treating people like us with private coverage. And I think that's a very um, important statistic that, you know, so if, you, if the government took over the whole thing, it would be far worse. Doctors would quit. I mean, just think about medical doctors. Doctors, if they're going to be paid 40% below what they get paid today, they're going to quit and retire. And I think the bigger point is that the best and brightest kids traditionally have gone into medicine in this country, and they're not, they're just not going to, to go into it. Um, you know, that, and then also that doctors would be employees of the government. Government would determine what kind of medicine they can practice, you know, how much they're going to be paid. You may be the very best orthopedic surgeon, I may be the worst, but we're paid the same, and we'll have a global budget. And what happens in November if the global budget that is set for, for us is done, we would have to just go on vacation, Absolutely. even if we couldn't afford it. <laughs> so what about some of these other plans that are advertised as more moderate, if you will, um, solutions like adding a public option or, or allowing more patients to buy into Medicare and Medicaid? How, how would that impact our health care system? Well, as I mentioned, 65% of people polled recently now support the public option. I think if you go back to looking, remember when Kamala Harris, the senator from California, who early on I thought she could well be the candidate, but she really, I think, um, her candidacy dropped because of her waffling on on Medicare for All. One day she supported it, the next day she didn't, and so she lost support, and, and she's out. Senator Warren, of course, up until very recently, was a big supporter of the full government takeover of health care. Now she says, well, within the first 100 days, I would introduce a public option. My third year in the presidency, I'd be bringing in Medicare for all. Because all those people who have, have the public option, which is a government insurance plan that would compete in the exchanges against uh, private coverage, they would all love their government insurance, so therefore they'd want to be in Medicare for all. So I, I just think that is a complete lie, and we, we, we know that in talking to people. But uh, Senator Warren, uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg, Joe Biden, they've all kind of switched to this, well, we're going to go to um, this public option, the government plan first, and it's a stepping stone approach. And even um, Mayor Buttigieg has said that while he supports the public option, if after a couple of years it's not working and not everybody is in, well, then he would go to Medicare for all. When we talk about uh, Medicare for all, that's somewhat of a misnomer because it, it, it's not somewhat, it is a misnomer. Right. Because it, it really should be called what it is, and that is it's a, a one-size-fits-all government-run health care system. Right. And a couple of years ago, I was debating um, Uvi Reinhardt, the Princeton economics professor, who unfortunately, sadly, passed away a year and a half or so ago. But I was doing an international debate with him, talking about the Canadian wait times, the ration care. You can't see a specialist without getting a referral, how hard it is to get a doctor. And he interrupted me and said, Sally, we have an example of a single-payer system in this country, and it is terrific. And I said, well, Uvi, what plan is that? He said the VA, the Veterans Administration. And, of course, this was before all of the information came out about the fact that our vets are not getting 
um, top care. They're they're on waiting lists. They're not. They don't have access, as you well know, to the latest um, drugs and biologics that are available for people who have private coverage. So we really have to educate people. And I think you know the American people understand now that the Veterans Administration is a disaster. And so. Is that what, what we want? But anyway, the, these politicians are really pushing to, because some people seem a bit skittish about Medicare for all single payer, let's, let's go and, and have a public option just to compete first. And my own OBGYN said just recently when I was having my checkup, you know, I lose a lot of money on my Medi-Cal patients, that's California's Medic- Medicaid. Um, I barely break even on Medicare, and I have to make my salary from people like you who have private coverage, but you get, I get really good care. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about two of the plans, the Sanders plan and the Jayapal plans. Right. Both of those. Um, those she must bills, be a good friend of yours. <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. No. Um, but, but, I mean, I, I know her. And, right, and of that's, course. That's fine. But um, they would actually just destroy Medicare. I mean, it, it would, as we know it, and, and for young Americans, and rich or poor, it would mean that they would be into a new government-run health care system. Right, exactly. So Pramila Jayapal, being the House member, she's chairman of the Medicare for All Caucus. She is really pushing um, to, to tell the American people. She's from Washington State. I'm from Vancouver, so sort of the similar areas, both uh, Vancouver, British Columbia and Washington State, very liberal. Um, but Senator Sanders and uh, Pramila Jayapal say Medicare would be eliminated, Medicaid would be eliminated, the government program would be it for everybody. The only two programs that would be left would be the Indian Health Services, which I don't think gives the best of care to our um, Indian people, and the second would be the Veterans Administration, which is another example of a system I've talked about that hasn't gone well. And Mrs. Uh, Jayapal has admitted when asked, well, what would happen to all the people that work in the insurance industry and things like that? And she admitted that a million people in the insurance industry would lose their jobs. And Elizabeth Warren, when was confronted with that, she said, and asked, well, what, what will these people do? And she said, well, they can work in the auto insurance industry or the, the life insurance industry. There's no comparison to working um, in the health insurance, in health insurance versus auto insurance. And, of course, Bernie Sanders said, well, yes, one to two million uh, will lose their jobs, but I'm going to set up a federal training program to retrain all of those people so that within five years they will have a new career. And you and I know that is just not, not going to, to, to work, and it would be incredibly expensive. In your book, you, you say, Medicare for All gives the government a monopoly over the provision of health insurance, and it forbids doctors who participate in the scheme from accepting private payment from any service the government covers. Now, you just mentioned uh, you went to your OBGYN, and she said, you know, I lose money on, on Medicaid, I believe it was. Me- yeah, yes. And then Medicare, I break even, and then I make my salary on no, private. If you take that away... What's that going to mean to to salaries of healthcare workers, not only doctors but pharmacists? Might I add, pharmacists, healthcare um, people that work, at, uh, you know, in hospitals, all of these people. It's going to have a tremendous impact on your ability to, to keep your job. And of course, it also means that the federal government, if it's the federal government that's taking the whole thing over, who's going to do all this work that the one to two million people in, in the insurance industry and another maybe one million people in pharmacy and all of these things? Um, well. Who's, who's going to be doing these jobs? The government is going to have to expand tremendously because doctors are going to have to be paid. There will have to be a whole new bureaucracy to pay doctors. And, of course, and my cousin's an ophthalmologist up in Vancouver, um, Canada, and as he says, I find it amazing that the, the American people think it'll be so wonderful if the government is paying you know, their bills. He said, 
do you know how long it takes the government you know to pay <laughs> to pay me and when my budget is done in november i have to go on vacation and you know so it's going to be it's it's really going to be a disaster for pharmacists for people who work in hospitals people doctors even for hospitals it's, it's going to reduce the number of hospitals a lot of rural hospitals will go out of business on under a single payer government system and that is not what we need we need more rural hospitals because the people in the rural areas in many times have to travel many many miles in order to find doctors and 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 hospitals and to get the latest treatments and things so exactly now you're from Canada. You've mentioned that a number of times. Um, being a Canadian native, you, you've seen it firsthand. You've seen right. government-run health care. I grew up under it. The federal government fully took over the Canadian health care system in 1984. No private coverage is allowed for anything considered medically necessary. Most things are medically necessary in, the, in, the, in, in, in healthcare. The, a couple of things that aren't, cosmetic surgery if I want to make myself look younger and better, uh, LASIK surgery for your eyes, all procedures where the prices come down, not gone up because the government isn't involved. And so in Canada, um, in, as I say in 84, the government took it over. Um, I worked at the Fraser Institute where we started a project in 88, it first came out in 93, called Waiting Your Turn, A Guide to Hospital Waiting Lists. And in 1993, the first year, the average wait time from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist, as I say, you don't call up your OBGYN in Canada, you have to go to a GP, general practitioner, who then refers you if he thinks it's necessary. In 1993, that wait was 9.3 weeks, just over two months. Today, last year, 2019, the average wait time had increased to 20.9 weeks. That's over five weeks. months. And 608,000 Canadians cross the border every year and pay out of pocket for getting MRIs, PET scans, um, orthopedic surgeries, hip replacements, um, uh, heart, you know, valve replacements, things, things, things like that, because they feel that their health is too important to have to wait so long. Canadians have an escape valve. If we have the government to get, where, where are we going to go? Um, we'll have to set up my liberty ship. So uh, doctors like Dr. Tom Price and others will have to be practicing offshore so that we can get, continue to get the very best uh, in medicine that the American people demand. You know, my, America is a very wealthy country. And my mom used to say, I hope you're not becoming one of those impatient Americans, which of course I am now. But, you know, Canadians and Brits, when the doctor says, well, I'm sorry, you know, Ms. Pipes, but, you know, um, you're not going to be able to get an appointment with, you know, to get a colonoscopy for eight months to a year, even though when you think of a problem, um, Canadians are very nice. They said, well, fine, that'll be, that'll be nice. I mean, some, as I say, 608,000 across the border. But a lot of people, they're just so polite, and they don't know anything different because most people growing up have grown up under single payer, and it started slowly, and as I say, it finally um, was all in in 1984. So there are a number of proposals out there, but when we're talking, and, and thus far we've talked primarily about the Sanders and the Jayapal um, proposals. Right. Is that what they have in Canada? or is- um, That's what they have in Canada. So, as I say, nothing, there is no private coverage for anything considered medically necessary, which is the majority of things. You can get private insurance for, um, like if you're a Canadian, you want to come to the U.S. on vacation, you're afraid you might, if you get sick, of course, the Canadian government, what they pay, would not cover any of the, the cost here. So people get private coverage for traveling. They'll get private coverage for um, having a private room in a hospital because that's not part of, part of the system, an ambulance going to, the, going to the hospital, things like that. But Bernie Sanders' plan is even more comprehensive than the Canadian plan. As I say, these um, over five weeks wait 
uh, for, from seeing a primary care doc to treatment by a specialist. The average wait in Canada for neurosurgery is 33 weeks. We have, for every 1 million people, 16 MRI machines versus 44 in the U.S., but more interestingly, 24 in Lithuania. I mean, it's, it's really um, ridiculous. But Bernie wants to add free eye care, free dental care, free drugs, free long-term care. So when Charles Blayhouse at Mercatus says, you know, 30 to 40 trillion over 10 years for Bernie's plan, and he had agreed that that would be the, the price until he didn't, he changed his mind, said he didn't want to, you know, he told Nora O'Donnell on CBS Evening News last Friday, I just don't know how much my plans are going to cost. He's kind of backed away from that, but he knows it's going to be very, very expensive. And as we just saw today, the increase in the federal deficit under Bernie's plan would go up $20 trillion over 10 years at the, at the high end. So, you know, it, you know, if you add more things, Canada tried to bring in free drugs uh, several years ago under a Liberal Prime Minister, and um, he found out that it was so expensive that they, they, they just couldn't afford to do it. So Bernie wants to make it, our system even more comprehensive, and no referral to a specialist. You have to have gatekeepers because the demand for health care will far out exceed the supply of health care that, that can be given, and that's why I think even that 30 to 40 trillion increase in federal spending over 10 years is probably on the low side. Probably the the two most prominent examples, if you will, of, of the Medicare for All system are Canada and UK, right. and there are other countries that have it. Now, as I understand it, in in Canada and in the United Kingdom, you you all you still have an out of pocket expense and out of pocket responsibility, and as well as in Denmark, Norway, and Finland, there still are some out of pocket expenses that you have responsibility for. Right, exactly. And so in Canada is one of three countries in the world that has a true single-payer health care system. The other two are Cuba and North Korea. So think about what kind <laughs> of health care you'd get in, in those countries. The United Kingdom has what we call a universal coverage system. The NHS, National Health Service, started in 1971. It covers about 90% of Brits. They allow private coverage to run parallel, and about 10% of Brits rising, though, have, have private coverage um, from and some of the companies that are they, in the UK are, are American companies um, like the Blue Cross companies and there's a British BUPA. But they, they, this is becoming more popular because just in December there were over 4 million Brits on a waiting list to get treatment. And the cancer um, treatment is not supposed to be delayed from seeing a general practitioner to getting treatment more than 62 days. They haven't met in the UK that standard for over five years. And more important, under the World Health Organization study, Brits are at the bottom of the rung in most industrialized countries in all forms of, of cancer survival rates five years out. That tells you something about life expectancy um, with cancer um, under a government, basically a government-controlled system. You mentioned it uh, just a few minutes ago, and, and it's obviously a big concern. How much is this going to cost? I mean, you know, I've seen figures, $32 trillion over 10 years, trillion. Yes, trillion, not, not million or billion, exactly. And as I say, Charles Blayhouse has costed it that, and he said that would even include if they had some reduced administrative costs and some reduced drug costs. But the total, so that would be the increase in federal spending over 10 years. But if you, what would be the total cost of the plan? It would be somewhere 50 to $60 trillion over 10 years. And as, as you, it won't, it won't be free. Taxes will have to go up. Sanders has said there'd have to be a new four percent income tax 
on anyone earning over $29,000 a year. That is very little income uh, in this country and would hit a lot of people. There'd be a new 7.5% payroll tax. Elizabeth Warren said, well, the payroll tax is not paid by middle class people because remember, her plan wouldn't increase taxes on anyone in the middle class. But she doesn't realize the people that pay the employer tax are the employees and they are, for the most part, middle class. Then there'd be new, a new tax on the wealthy. There would be uh, new taxes on large financial institutions. I mean, as Blayhouse said, you could, if you doubled all the corporate income taxes in this country and all the personal income taxes, it wouldn't be enough to cover this, 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 this plan. So taxes would have to go up even further. And as I say, it won't be free because you're going to be facing all these taxes. And it's not free because in terms of when you are in pain and can't work, there's a cost to having your care mm -hmm. rationed and not being able to get access to timely care. There's a cost to you. There's also a cost to the employer. And right, exactly. And it's yeah. just a domino effect. Right, right. Let me ask you this. Um, one of the things that we've been working on in Congress, and I serve on the Health Subcommittee on Energy and Commerce, has been um, prescription drug pricing, obviously something that's very interest, uh, that I have a high interest right. in. And one of the, we've talked to, we haven't, but there have been proposals by the other side, the other party, that uh, call for price controls right. on prescription drugs. Yes. And our concern, and my concern, has been uh, stifling innovation. Now, I, I started practicing pharmacy in 1980. I, I started when I was 10, but nevertheless. Right, exactly. I started working on this too when I was 10. Yes, yeah, yeah. But the, the point is, is that over that period of time, I've seen nothing short of miracles through research and development. And, and, and that's, that's phenomenal. Now, I, I'm, I certainly want to make clear that the pharmaceutical manufacturers need to do a better job with their pricing, but there are other things that we can do with price controls. Do you see that stifling innovation? Do you see companies oh. not putting money into research and development? Well, absolutely. It will totally stifle innovation. And, you know, you have to think about it. Where is most of the research and development into new drugs, biologics, biosimilars? Where is that innovation done? It's not done in Switzerland or Germany or England. All the companies, whether it's Novartis, whether it's GlaxoSmithKline, all of these companies do their R&D in this country. And there's a reason for it. If you are a country, those countries like Canada to England all have price controls. So you would just lose your shirt um, develop, trying to develop new drugs. And as you know, most new drugs don't make it through the system. It costs about $3 billion from an idea to getting, the drug, uh, getting a drug through all the trials and getting it to market. So countries with price controls can't, can't do this. So we are the innovator and the incubator of all the great new innovations. And if you just think of the cancer therapies, all of these things, the new things that are coming out for various muscular dystrophy, Alzheimer's, they're all taking place in this country. And very few of the drugs that go into trial make it. And it's very expensive. And so we want to keep the pipeline in this country open. Countries like Canada with price controls, they do import drugs. They import drugs from the United States or they manufacture them in Canada, but they're American drugs. And people say, oh, well, th th their drugs are cheaper. Well, they have price controls. But what people don't realize is that the Canadian patented, pat the patented Medicines Prices Review Board decides what drugs are going to be imported at what price. And if they decide that the latest new drug to treat um, muscular dystrophy is too expensive, it doesn't even get onto the formulary. So there are additional costs. If Nancy Pelosi and her crew at HR3 get that through, and if it got through the Senate, this would be a disaster. For, for all of us who depend on these 
great new innovations. And as Frank Lichtenberg at Columbia says, for every $1 spent on newer pharmaceuticals, we save $7.17 in hospital costs. It used to be if you had a gallbladder situation, you had to have your gallbladder removed. There are costs to that. You might not make it through the anesthetic or, and you have to recover from the anesthetic. There are drugs now that have supplanted surgeries and it's so, and, and hospital costs are reduced as well. Absolutely. I, I give the example all the time of um, hepatitis C. Uh, back yes. when I came out of school in 1980, if you were diagnosed with hepatitis C, you were going to die. Yeah, you were going to get liver cancer. And, 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 and that was it. It, yeah. it was essentially a death sentence. Right. Now we can cure it with a pill. How and, phenomenal is that? And people say, well, you know, that pill, you know, um, from... Um, um, uh, the Gilead, right. you know, is $85,000, but it does do the cure. If you have to have a liver transplant, we're looking at $500,000. So, you know, and it's hard, many times you're not able to get a liver that's a match. So it's actually very inexpensive and you get rid of your hep C. You mentioned HR3, and, and we had an alternative. We, in the Republican right. Party, HR19, which was much better and didn't have any price controls. The Congressional Budget Office, CBO, scored HR3, and with the price controls, it was estimated that eight to 10, or excuse me, eight to 15 drugs that would have come out on the market in the next two years would not if we put those price controls into effect. And, and, you know, which drug is that? Is that the cure for Alzheimer's? Is it the cure for diabetes? Even if it's just one, it's one too many. Right, exactly. And I've even seen numbers that 100 uh, fewer drugs would yes. be um, developed in, in, in this country. And, and, you know, so many people with diseases like diabetes that are just waiting and holding on, hoping that they're going to be able to survive. For, and when the next new uh, drug comes out, that will allow them to be like people who, you know, have survived with hepatitis C because of, of um, the drug from Gilead. Right. One last thing on this before we move on. Um, you mentioned that not all the drugs that are available here in America are available in Canada or right. in the United Kingdom. Right, exactly. And, you know, so um, people, you know, in Canada, I mean, you have to pay for your drugs in Canada. They're not only people at the very low end of the, of the um, income ladder actually get free or reduced drugs. But most people pay at the pharmacy. But they often, in many cases, you know, the drugs that, that they are getting, um, because the latest drugs aren't on the formulary, they don't even know that there's a, a newer drug that may cure their leukemia or their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. My uncle um, passed away from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, back in 2003. Now, here in America, rituxan had been approved by the FDA um, in 1997. And when I talked to my cousin about my uncle with NHL, I said, well, you should look, go to the head of the cancer agency and see, well, what about getting uh, rituxan for your dad? And he did. And the head of the cancer agency had never heard of rituxan. He got back to my cousin in two weeks and said, well, you know, that drug's just not available here. You can take your dad down to Seattle and go to the Fred Hutchison Clinic there. Well, you know, you have to go over the border. It's, it's a big deal for when you're older and you're sicker. But so a lot of these new new drugs are just not, not available. And, and people don't even know about them, but they think, you know, the, the Canadian healthcare system is almost like a religion, just like in the UK. You can't criticize it. And yet everybody's complaining. And the older you are, the more likely you are going to complain. So let's talk about some of the other costs not necessarily monetary. Right. Um, wait times. You talked about wait times earlier right. and, and the overcrowding that takes place in, in, in the hospitals and in the right. healthcare system in general. 
So in Canada, as I mentioned, the average wait from seeing a primary care doctor to treatment by a specialist is 20.9 weeks, over five months. I mean, can you imagine Americans, if, if I went to the doctor and I felt I had some a problem, but I couldn't even, you know, go from my primary care doctor to getting, you know, treatment by a uh, gastroenterologist or whatever. It would be, you know, we, I would be very upset. Americans would just wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate it. So you have long wait times, care is rationed. Take the case of my mom, who was a senior and who thought she had colon cancer. She went to the doctor, had an x-ray, and I said, you know, mom, and he said, I don't see anything. So, my, so I said, well, mom, you don't detect colon cancer with an x-ray. You need to get a colonoscopy. So she said, well, you call. I said, no, I'm, not, I'm down in the States. You call. So she did. And the doctor told her, primary care doctor said, unfortunately, you're a senior. We have too many younger people who are on the waiting list to get a colonoscopy who have symptoms that are serious. So six months later, my mom had lost 30 pounds. She was hemorrhaging one morning. We got her to the hospital in an ambulance, two days in the emergency room, two days in the transit lounge, waiting for a bed in a ward. She got her colonoscopy, died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. This is how, when government sets a global budget, we spend 18% of GDP, Canada spends 11. When, you're, when you have to limit what you're going to spend, there, there isn't enough to go around, and so people are going to have to wait, and the people that are going to wait the most, the longest, are our seniors. Right. And it's the same in the UK. Just... 4,000 uh, people, it was just revealed, you know, went blind with glaucoma because the waiting time to get an appointment with, with an ophthalmologist was just too long. By the time they finally got their appointment, a thousand of them, you know, were, uh, were, were, had gone blind. The book again, False Promise, False Premise, False Promise. Yes. And one thing that I really enjoyed was the stories, just like the ones that you just shared. But um, one of the stories that talks about uh, overcrowding, Mary Louise Murphy was sweating profusely and had trouble breathing when a friend brought her to Abbott's Ford uh, Regional Hospital in British Columbia on the night of January 30, 2017, according to the CBC. She was quickly seen by a doctor, was told the 56-year-old she was experiencing muscle spasms. She was given a shot of morphine and sent home. Murphy died two, to, two days later on February 1st. Her experience is unfortunately common in Canada, where overcrowding often leaves hospital staff unable to devote proper attention to emergency room patients. Well, exactly. Emergency rooms are piled high with, with patients. When the SARS um, um, situation was in Canada back um, several years ago, I mean, ambulances were having to leave one hospital and go to another to try to get room for somebody to get in to the, to the ER. But they have what they call bed blocking in, in Canada, which means people who are older who are in the hospital with something, you know, chronic, I guess you would call it, um, they, they stay in those beds, and so people, that, younger people who need to have surgeries and things, they can't get into the be, into the get a bed in the hospital because they're blocked by these people who really should be in a you know in a senior's home or in an assisted living facility. So it really it's it's it it's it's just amazing how the Canadian healthcare system, the government system. Uh, works and my very good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Day, is an orthopedic surgeon. Has a private Canby surgery in Vancouver. Has been treating uh, private patients, which is illegal under the Canada Health Act in, in British Columbia. He has been in a lawsuit for ten years. This case has been in the B.C. Supreme Court for three years. The government keeps putting more and more money into it to stall because they don't want to open up the system to a bit 
to some private alternative. And a lot of the people that he takes care of are people who are in the government who are opposed to opening up the system. So we, you know, choice and competition will solve so many of these problems. And, you know, there's no question there are some, th- there are some things that need to be changed in the American healthcare system. But choice and competition will bring down the cost, like in every aspect of our lives, and it will uh, lead to universal coverage. Another thing that, um, outside of the monetary costs, right. doctor shortage. Now, yes. now, one of the things you mentioned about fewer students going into, young people going into the medical profession the and all. P- kids, one yeah. of the things we're struggling with in Washington, D.C. right now is, 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 is the high cost of, um, of education and, and right. student loans. And certainly physicians and, and pharmacists and other healthcare professionals come out with high student loans. Um, how are we going to deal with the, with the doctor shortage? Well, the American Association of Medical Colleges has come out just recently and said by 2030, which isn't that far off, I never thought it would be 2020 so soon, <laughs> you know, there would be a shortage of 122,000 general uh, primary care doctors and general surgeons by 2030. 2030, yeah. So, and that is not, that's even before they consider whether the government take over of the healthcare system. We've seen a lot of doctors in this country sort of 50, 55 retiring early because of Obamacare. My husband's own primary care doctor sent him a letter last year and said, all of this electronic health records, all of this stuff, I can't practice medicine anymore, so I'm going to just retire and do my own research and things. We're seeing that so often that when government gets involved determining, you know, you have to have electronic health records. You can't look at your patient because you're working on your computer. Mm-hmm. And there's a relationship there that, that's developed. So there will be a shortage, and that shortage will be even greater. So it's, it's, I think it's incredibly worrying about our supply of doctors. And under single-payer, in Britain right now, the, there is a shortage of 100,000 um, doctors, nurses, and people who work in hospitals. The, Britain, the British government tried to you know, bribe doctors who had left England because of the National Health Service and how little they were paid and how long they worked, and tried to bribe them with money to come back. And the response was virtually, virtually nothing. Just a few docs came back because doctors aren't paid very well. Um, in in the UK versus the US and in in the US versus in Canada as well, our doctors are well paid. They do have, you know, debts and it is expensive. But you know, over time, they they make good money. They save people's lives, and I I think we don't want to destroy that great incentive. Right. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about the number of. Uh uh, of MRR machines and, and the cutting-edge treatment, if you will. Right. Does that exist in, in Canada and the U.K. like it does in America? No, absolutely not. So, because when the government, each of the provincial governments control, or the ten provincial governments controls what's going to be sent, bent on health care. So you see reports, stories from radiologists saying, our equipment, our x-ray equipment is so old, we don't even think we can rely on the results. But if you, if you think the average wait in Canada for an MRI is 22 weeks, that's over five months, and the fact that Canada has 16 MRI machines for every million people, and it is a, small, a large country with only 37 million people, but one MRI machine, uh, 16 MRI machines for a million people. We have 44 machines for every one million people. And countries in the Eastern Bloc have, you know, 20 to 24, more than, more than Canada. I mean, Canada is a highly industrialized country. Isn't it a shock that you can't get access? And I think the number of positron emission tomography machines, which are even higher, um, um, le- a higher level of machine than the MRI machine, very, very few 
in Canada. Whereas here, you know, if you've got cancer and they've discovered something, you will get a PET scan. One of the um, darker parts, if you will, of, of, of the book, you discussed the the assisted suicide and the death panels. And right. I, I found that to be very interesting and, and quite honestly, a, a little depressing. Yes. Yeah. What? Tell me about that. Well, remember when Sarah Palin was yes. running as, and she was on the beach, she talked about ration care and death panels. I don't like to use the word death panels too much because it sort of scares people. But it really is, they are death panels. It's ration care because government is determining who is going to get care and and how much care. And so in Canada, in many cases, people are told, you know, well, you know, you're you're not going to be able to get better, you're older, you should have assisted suicide because it'll be cheaper uh, for everybody. And of course, that's not the American way. The relationship should be between the doctor, the family, and the patient. And so once you start government getting involved, in the UK, for example, they have NICE. And it's not a NICE division within the NHS. It's the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. NICE has a division um, which, is, um, which figures out how... How much, how, what is the value of your life and what is the cost of the treatment or the pharmaceutical? It's called quality, quality adjusted um, life um, years. And so if the NICE, the government board, decides that you, you're, you're retired, you're worth $30,000, but you, know, you could be cured with hep C with a drug that cost $80,000. But because you're not worth that, you're not going to be able to have access to it. And this is what I fear will happen under in the U.S. under ICER, you know, the organization in Massachusetts, which is patterning itself um, on, on, on the, the NICE program in the, in the U.K. I mean, this would also be a way. So under a single-payer system, this would have to come in because it will be an additional way of denying care to people by determining, letting if you're not worth that, then you're not going to get a drug or a treatment that costs more than what we've determined you're worth. One last question about the, the American system versus the, the other countries. You hear these statistics of, uh, about how much the, the life expectancy in, in Canada and UK right. as compared to the United States. And, and that can be misleading. It, definitely. So the two things are life expectancy and infant mortality. You're yes. always hearing, like on infant mortality, that we have a very low, um, we have a very high rate of infant mortality. And oh, by the to, way, the state of Georgia has the highest. Oh, okay. Well, embarrassing. But but the thing that, you know, when you're comparing the United States infant mortality rate to that, say, in France, you have to compare apples to apples. We have very highly developed um, neonatal units in this country, and a, a child has access, a baby has access to the latest treatments and, and ways to keep that baby alive. Tiny, tiny, you know, preemie babies uh, live in this country. If you are in France, a baby has to be considered, is considered a live birth if it weighs a certain amount of, weighs a certain amount and is of a certain length. So, you know, many of these babies, you know, don't, that don't make it, um, in, in France or in Germany do make it here. And so you're not comparing apples and apples because the system of measuring infant mortality are different. And on life expectancy, you'll say, well, you know, the life expectancy is declining in this country. It's down to 79.2 years. But you have to look at what makes up life expectancy. Um, the, the, the issue is that the United States has the highest um, 
a level of car, deaths from car accidents. Obesity is a big thing. On a per capita basis, we have the highest number of uh, deaths from guns and things. So, you know, you're not, in other countries, they don't have the deaths through car accidents the, at the level that we do. They don't have um, deaths from um, guns. They do, the, the United States has a very serious problem with obesity, but you don't mm -hmm. see that in many countries in, in Europe or in Canada. But many of these people who are very obese, it leads to many medical issues and in some cases a, a shorter lifespan. So you have to compare, you know, apples to apples in all of these things. And I think if you look at the cancer survival rates five years out, whether it's pancreatic cancer, whether it's uh, colon cancer, whether it's um, breast cancer or prostate cancer, we have the highest survival rates from the World Health Organization's um, stats from the Commonwealth Fund. We do, we have the very best, and we want to build on that. We don't want to have to, you know, go down and become like a third world country. One last thing, the, I mean, you talked about this earlier, the onset uh, of, the, uh, of these programs of Medicare for All. What, what does that look like? How does that work? I, the Sanders plan, the Jayapal plan, if they were to implement Medicare for All, and would it be suddenly or over a period of time? Or? Well, we, we don't know, but um, Bernie Sanders did say recently when, when he was in this huge debate, you know, he and, and Elizabeth Warren are like at loggerheads right now. You're a liar. You're a liar. Well, Sanders said, well, because she said she would introduce the Medicare for All in year three of her presidency. He said, I would introduce Medicare for All in the first week of my presidency because you don't want to be stalling and taking time because then there will be all kinds of complications. So he wants to just, like, take over the whole health care system immediately, ban all private insurers. People would be out of work. Who knows, how would doctors get paid? How, how, how much would they have to expand the bureaucracy to get people to do, to have people doing billing uh, in, in the federal government? I mean, if you ask people, do you like the post office? No, I use FedEx or UPS now, but people have a choice. Some people will use the post office, but people have a choice of the private system, and that, there's a reason that FedEx and UPS and DHL are, are in business. What these people want is to get rid of the DHLs and all of that and just have government uh, be in charge, and that makes me very nervous when I go to... The, when I think about the DMV or the post office, are those going to be the kinds of people that are going to be making decisions about my health care, about your health care, um, about how doctors are going to be paid, what they will be paid, um, you know, and if they're not paid, you know, what they're worth, they're, that's, a, that's a problem. Okay. We've established this premise now right. uh, about Medicare for All. We obviously know the American people aren't going to put up with this. Right. The, this is not what they want. What will work? Yeah, conservatives often take criticism that uh, you don't have a plan, and, and we do have a plan, but... We have to communicate it. We do. Tell me. Tell me what works. Tell me so, how we fix this system that, at the beginning of the book, you said the health care system is broken. Right. So we want universal coverage, and that will come through competition and choice, empowering doctors and hospitals. So during World War II, when wage and price controls were in, we got into this mess. Employers got the ability to write off the cost of their health care, and we, as employees, got our health care tax-free. If I'm fired or I quit my job and go into the individual market, I have to buy my health care with after-tax dollars, which, you know, puts, makes a lot of people decide that they don't want to buy health coverage. So I would say in the interim, we need to reform the tax code so that individuals could get their health care tax-free in the same way that we get our health care. But, of course, we do make lower wages um, because when the employer is paying, they, they, they don't, employers don't have money, you know, 
taxpayers do. So we, we make less money, but we get our health care tax-free. I'd like to level that playing field and ultimately, over time, get rid of that tax exclusion. We don't get our car insurance, our house insurance, our life insurance through our employer, and we shouldn't be getting our health care through our employer. But it's the feds that got us into the mess, so we need to make that change. We need to um, expand health savings accounts. You know, that about 20-some million people in this country now have HSAs. Employers are even offering them. Puts doctors and patients in charge. People, you know, are more careful when they're spending their own money. As Milton Friedman used to say, health care, with its first dollar coverage, the 180 million people that have employer coverage, they have no idea what it costs. They think it's free or that little copay. And when people think it's free, they use a lot more of it. So, um, we want to expand health savings accounts. I think people age 65 and over should be able to you know, continue to put money into their HSAs. I think people should be able to use their HSA money to help pay the premium if they're having a difficulty. So put the doctor and patient in charge. We need to do medical malpractice reform. Remember when um, President Obama stood up and said this, you know, this little pill, I mean, your doctors are giving people pills, doctors are doing unnecessary testing and it's very expensive. Uh, because they want to line their pockets with money. Doctors practice defensive medicine because they're afraid of being sued. Mm -hmm. And particularly neurosurgeons and, and um, obstetricians, some of them drop out because they can't afford the premiums unless they're in a large hospital practice. PricewaterhouseCoopers said that cost defensive medicine $210 billion a year. You know, Texas, you know, a, a cap non-economic damages, and they had about 16,000 doctors went back into Texas to practice medicine. We have to you know, do these punitive damages and non-economic damages, put control in so that we, we stop all this frivolous lawsuits of an ambulance chasing lawyers going after people. Um, I think we also need to um, block grant Medicaid, allow people on Medicaid to feel better about themselves, get an HMO. We need to, I think that uh, Trump's, you know, Medicaid um, work um, part is a very important part. Why should people decline taking a um, uh, promotion because they don't want to go off their Medicaid. These people are willing and able to work, and th those who are, they should be, you know, not on Medicaid. They should be working their way up the ladder. Uh, people should be able to buy their health insurance across state lines. We need price transparency. I think that is a really big issue, and, and mm -hmm. Mr. Trump realizes that it is. President Trump realizes price trend. People want to know what things cost, and if they don't know, it, they can't compare. And American people like to compare. We need to get rid of, you know, and this is an issue in Georgia right now, the certificate of need laws, which yes. keeps ho new hospitals off the market and helps those hospitals stay in business and make more money. So we need to get rid of those like we did in Florida. Um, so th those are a few um, of the things that are part of my plan to um, bring about, um, keep America as the um, diamond platinum um, healthcare system in the world. People do come here from all over the world, not just from Canada, but people from the Middle East come here and, and get tremendous treatments that they can't um, get in their, in their own country. Why is it that Americans still don't trust the free market system? I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Well, we were talking about this this morning. How is it that socialism is expanding in this country and that young people, young millennials and these people are all thinking the government can do this better. Do they take a look? Do they go to the post office? Do they go to the DMV? I mean, if they, do they look at people in the VA health system? Do they look at people on the Medicaid program? Why? I think it's partly because in the public schools and even in private schools today, children are being taught by teachers and professors who continually say that capitalism is bad socialism is good 
and as Milton Friedman would say, and therefore we need more socialism. So they're being indoctrinated without ever hearing about free market ideas. I founded an organization called the Benjamin Rush Institute back in 2008. It's a sort of comparable to the Federal Society for Law Students. And the idea is to have debates on campuses, because if I go and debate um, doctors on campuses, medical schools, that are, they're all for government takeover of health care. And their students have never heard the alternative. And I'll be talking and debating, and they'll be snickering and laughing because they think that that's all they know, and they think it'll be more efficient, it'll be cheaper, everyone will be covered. They have no clue about what it'll mean for their ability to practice medicine. So we really, you know, there's a huge problem in this country with, uh, with identity politics, with, go- with government taking over everything. And somehow we've got to take that back. We have, and, and it's no, it's it, no it, easy undertaking, I, I will know, tell you that. I know, I know. Just one, one last thing from personal experience, if you will. I, I give the example because people ask me, how is competition going to bring drug prices down? When I was still practicing pharmacy, uh, we had a company come out with this uh, idea of a generic, a 30-day supply of generic for $4. I could not even buy generics that cheap. I bowed my back and I said, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I can't even buy them that cheap. Well, guess what? A week later, I was selling a 30-day supply of generic for $4. Right. I called up my supplier. I said, you got to do something. You've got to help me here. Right. I have people leaving. I can't let that happen. Right. And sure enough, it drove down the, the price prices. of generics. Because And generics, I mean, most, most people today in America take generic drugs and they, they are really reasonable because the, the original drug has come off patent. And generic drugs in Canada are even way more expensive than they are here. But the FDA needs to um, quicken up its um, uh, approval of, of new drugs and new biologics. They also need to um, shorten the time that it takes for a generic to get through because generics are much more efficient and for many, many um, disease for most people that have like regular sore throats and colds and various things, uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. The generics are real copies of the patented drug, and they do work, and they are you know far cheaper, and that brings down the cost of cost of drugs. Again, false promise, false premise, false promise. Yes, a great book, a Thank timely you. book, a very much needed book. I encourage everyone if you have the opportunity to read this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was terrific, and um, I hope you are running again and that you're reelected <laughs> and you'll help uh, the Republicans take back the House so we can get real health care reform Thank you. in this country. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank, Thank you. Good. Great. Okay. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and while you're there, we would appreciate it if you would rate and review us. You can also contact us at podcast at c-span.org.